Today we're going to continue on our series, Good Goals, Bad Gods, with a new year, often comes new snow, but a time for us to consider our habits, things we want to start, things we want to stop. I probably, like many of you, consider some things that I don't want to eat at the beginning of the year and some exercise routines that I want to start up. And so I added kind of a a Monday afternoon, early evening uh, routine to my regiment to head to Planet Fitness, and I experienced a temptation that I never anticipated. So as I was leaving, primarily my elliptical, because I can feel pretty good about myself on the elliptical, right? And I head out there to my right past the counter are about eight to 12 boxes of pizza, Well, the first Monday of every month is free pizza night at Planet Fitness. So I'm pretty frugal. I've calculated that if I hit it right, uh, I can get upgrade the black card, get a free massage and dinner without ever hitting a machine. Not too bad. That's why they say no critics, no the judgment-free zone at Planet Fitness. They also have free bagels once a month, free donuts. And so I can kind of work this system out to my advantage, right? Hopefully you're doing better at your goals than I am. But as we set the new year, uh, we often set goals related to education, career aspirations, physically, often spiritual goals. Goals are good. The problem becomes when those things that are good become the supreme or ultimate drive of our life. When those goals become gods in our life. They're the things where we draw our identity, we draw our worth, how we define ourselves from these things. Because we see all throughout the Bible this concern to keep ourselves from gods and other idols. We see it early on in scripture, in God's top 10, the 10 commandments in Exodus 23. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. We see it repeated throughout scripture. We see in 1 John chapter 5, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. What we may tend to think as Old Testament, or maybe for some other less sophisticated cultures, we too can give a ultimate or supreme value to people or things that only God deserves its rightful place. And so today we're going to continue on our conversation talking about the idol of success. It's good to be a high achiever, right? We desire to uh, instill that value within our kids. We want them to get good grades, to get or land a great job. But there is a point when our passion for high achievement crosses over into being too concerned about achieving things. An achievement addiction, so to speak. There's a lady by the name of Mary Bell. She's a counselor who works with high-level executives. And she's quoted in this book called Success in Excess as saying this about achievement. Achievement's the alcohol of our time. These days, the best people don't abuse alcohol. They abuse their lives. 
You're successful, so good things happen. You complete a project, you feel dynamite. The feeling doesn't last forever, and you slide back to normal. You think, I've got to start a new project, which is still normal, but you love the euphoria, so you've got to have it again and again and again. The problem is, you can't stay on that high forever. Say you're working on a deal and it doesn't get approved. Your self-esteem is on the line because you've been gathering your self-worth externally. Eventually in this cycle, you drop to the pain level more and more often and the highs don't seem quite as high. For some of us, we have willingly sacrificed on the altar of success. Our family our friends, our health, at times, our morality. Pursuing success is a good thing, but when it becomes the ultimate thing and drive in our life, the place with which we draw our identity, our satisfaction, and our self-worth, our good goal has become an idol. It's become a god. I thought as we kind of introduced this topic, it would be appropriate to begin to take a self-assessment to see with what aspect of success we may be inclined to struggle with. So I have four statements that I want you to consider in terms of, is the goal of success in your life becoming closer to a God than a goal? Goals may be our God when acquaintances are what distinguish me. When I meet people and friends to serve a need to feel important. When people become a stepping stone or a status symbol that I can feel better being associated with this group of people. That it's more than just a high school phenomenon that my goal is to get in with the in crowd. That if I just work hard enough to surround myself with the right people, that I will feel value and significance about who I am. Goals may be our God when accumulations are what delight me. My goal may be a God when I start looking at the things my success and achievements can buy me and looking to those for fulfillment and treasure. Trusting those to make me happy. I trust that a new convenience will make my life better. A better car will bring me satisfaction. A bigger house will stoke contentment. More clothes will make me feel better about myself. The next purchase will just bring me the peace that I so long and desire. My goal may be my God when accolades are what drive me or accomplishments are what define me. That I begin to evaluate my life based off what I've received and achieved. That I'm quick in introducing myself to a new person to lead with my resume, to tell you how important in the things that I've accomplished. It can happen with our kids. We want to tell you how great they are. It can even happen in the church. 
We want to tell you our spiritual resume, so to speak, and our qualifications. And we can begin to define ourselves by our accomplishments and accolades are what drive us. I remember back to the end of my senior year in college. I had, from the outside perspective, a rather successful collegiate career. I had decent grades. I was involved in student organizations and had positions and roles and received some accolades. And towards the end of my senior year, I won an award with a few other people, the senior of the year at Akron. I was feeling pretty good about myself, feeling big man on campus. But at that time, I started kind of looking for the next route. I graduated with business, but I felt God leading me to pursue ministry. And so I began for looking for ministry opportunities. And I decided that I thought it would be good to continue with my involvement with fraternities because I saw a lot of opportunity for ministry there. So I looked all across the United States with seminaries that had undergraduate fraternities and sororities, and I started applying to different jobs. Over the course of some 15, 20 different job applications, I kept getting back no after no after no. And so as my summer came, I didn't have anything secure, and I decided to go out to a Christian sports camp to work for the summer. It was called Summer's Best Two Weeks. And they sent us uh, an opportunity to uh, sign up for kind of some qualification certifications before camp started. You can either sign up for high robes or, in particular, I chose to sign up for the lifeguard training. Now, I thought of myself as always a decent swimmer. When my basketball career didn't pan out after my sophomore year, I entertained for a short while the idea of joining the swim team. I was a self-conscious 17-year-old and learned I had to shave my legs, and that was out of that. <laughs> but I always decided that um, I could, you know, compete and do okay in the pool. So I make it out to camp early. We hop on the bus. There's a crew of us. We head to the local pool. I remember this guy. He was huge, and he begins to give us these instructions, and he tells us, you have 10 minutes and you need to swim 24 laps of the pool. Now he says the first eight is done freestyle. The second eight, backstroke. The third eight, breaststroke. I'm starting to get a little worried. I've never swam the backstroke or breaststroke in my life. But I'm still feeling pretty confident about my abilities. I make a buddy in the lane next to me. It's Dan. He attends the University of Miami of Ohio. I know he's going to be in front of me. I can observe him as he's ahead and kind of keep up. Well, as I hop in the pool and exert myself significantly at the beginning, lap six, lap seven, I am dog tired. I am looking up at the clock and I am beginning to calculate that if I were to continue in freestyle, there's absolutely no way that I'm going to compete this in the allotted time. And so I ashamedly hop out of the pool and I sit on my wooden bench that would be my seat for the next eight hours while the others pass their swim test. You know that when I think of my camp experience, I can't look past the idea of me failing my swim test. 
Because when I think over those two months, my self-confidence was at an all-time low. I came from everyone knowing me and my accomplishments and my accolades. Now here's Adam from the University of Akron who couldn't pass his swim test, right? When we begin to live our life externally hoping for some satisfaction, meaning, or definition, eventually it will fail. There's this story in the Old Testament that we find in 2 Kings chapter 5. It's of a guy who has a prominent position. He's wealthy. He has accolades, but there's something missing in his life. And in this story, we see some principles for us related to this idea of success in our pursuit of sex, success. The guy's name is Naaman. And Naaman is commander of the army of Aram. What that means is that he is second in charge of the nation. He's buddy-buddy with the king of Aram. He's a rather successful warrior and leader. He's wealthy. He has lots of people around him. It said, the Lord had given victory to Aram through Naaman and his leadership. But Naaman had the power, he had the prestige, but he had a problem. He had leprosy. Now, leprosy in the Bible is actually a group of skin-type diseases. Varying level, but most of them extremely severe, to the point that if you received leprosy, it was a death sentence. It would strike the chord much similar to the word cancer for us. So Naaman had leprosy, and he couldn't cure it himself. In one of the raids of Syria, or Aram, they took this small, young slave girl from the nation of Israel, and she began to work as a slave in Naaman's house. And she told Naaman's wife, hey, Naaman needs to go see the prophet in Israel to be healed of his leprosy. Holding out this small glimmer of hope, probably having exhausted every other opportunity for healing, Naaman goes to the king Ben-Hadad II of Aram, and they put together a plan. Ben-Hadad writes him this long recommendation letter. Naaman gathers all of money and uh, accumulations, things that he can take with him, and they decide that they're going to go travel and visit in enemy territory, the king of Israel. And so they do that. And Naaman heads that way, heads to the castle to go visit the king. When he gets there, he hands him his letter of recommendation and he sees this whole band of people behind him. It says the king reads his letter and it says that he tears his robe in disgust because what he knows is There is nothing in his own power that he's able to grant what Naaman's asking him. He knows that the God of Israel works very differently than the way that they perceive the gods from the country that they have come. And he knows there is no possibility to offer Naaman what he is looking for. 
He thinks maybe it might be a political trap, right? You have enemies coming here saying, heal my leader of leprosy. Maybe it's just a setup or a ploy. Now, when the king tears his robes, everyone in the nation hears about it. It's a significant event. So Elijah the prophet hears about it. He hears of Naaman's circumstances. And he says, send Naaman to me. Which was actually the instructions of the little slave girl from Israel. She never told him to go to the king. She said, go see the prophet. So Naaman makes his way. Goes, knocks on Elijah's door. And out comes a servant of Elijah. And he gives him very simple instructions. He says, Naaman, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River and you will be cleansed. What do you think Naaman does? The door shuts and he is frustrated and angry. How dare that prophet? Doesn't he know who I am? That he wouldn't even come out and greet me? That he wouldn't take a personal interview to hear my circumstance and situation? He wouldn't come out and perform some magical ritual and heal me of some amazing things. He actually asked me to go down to the Jordan River. Doesn't he know that Jordan River is a dirty river? I know many rivers back home where I'm from that are much cleaner than the Jordan River. And it says, in disgust and anger, Naaman starts walking back. But fortunately, he had some servants that cared a lot about him. And they start talking some sense into Naaman. Naaman, if the prophet had asked you to do something great and heroic, would you not have done that? Yeah, probably. Well, Naaman, why won't you at least try going down to the Jordan River and see what happens? And so Naaman does. He heads down to the Jordan River begins to take off all of his army gear and dip himself and begin to wash. Once, twice. On the seventh time, it says that he jumps up and he looks around and he has the skin of a young boy. I can just imagine him jumping around in the Jordan River, so excited that he has been healed. And it says immediately he went back to Elijah. He said, thank you so much. I now recognize that the one true God in all of the world resides in the nation of Israel. I recognize that he was the one who brought about my healing. Here, let me offer you the gift that I so graciously brought and want to pay for my healing. And Elijah refuses. And Naaman heads off. Now, I think in this story, we see some principles that will support elsewhere in scripture about the idea of success. And the first big idea is this. Success is found by overcoming my need to be acknowledged and acknowledging my need. You see, at the root, Naaman was prideful. He expected others, based on his success, to give him special treatment. He expected others to recognize his importance. He wanted his self-worth to be defined by what he could do. But it took a willingness to humble himself and admit that he was a needy person 
and go down to the dirty Jordan River to receive the healing that she so deeply longed for. Because what we see in Scripture is this upside-down way of looking at the world. Because it isn't the prideful that get ahead. Rather, it's those who are willing to humble themselves. You see, in James chapter 4, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Luke 14, 11, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will will be exalted. If you were to do a quick survey and study of the Bible and look at pride, you would see how disgusted God is over pride. That it brings a disgrace. That those who are looked graciously in his sight are those that are willing to humble themselves, to acknowledge the need that they have. You see, for each of us, the idol of success is often revealed during difficult circumstances or trying times. It's only there that we recognize that we don't have the power to control our destiny. That we don't have the power to determine our worth. We work really hard for others to notice us, to think that we're important. But true success is never found in the approval of others. Only found when we recognize that we can receive God's approval, not for what we do or have done, but rather for what he's done for us. That we can live out of an acknowledgement of security and significance, not in our own doing, not in our accomplishments and accolades, And the path to true success always begins with the path of humility. I like to think of the way that many of my friends who are in recovery in Christ have experienced their freedom and healing from drugs and alcohol. Many of them have gone through something that's called the 12 steps in AA. And step one of the 12 steps is that we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. That our lives had become unmanageable. That only there when we are willing to bow our knees and recognize that in our own power, we make a mess of things. That we humble ourselves asking God for his grace, his forgiveness, his goodness, his direction, and his guidance that then we can be, begin to live out of the overflow of his approval and his goodness. That true success is only foundational when I first humble myself, lay down my pride, acknowledge my need, and forget about others trying to view me and vow me as important. I think for each of us, We need to make it our goal to align my life by permanent standards of success. It's very easy for us to live by standards of success that we or our family or our friends have set aside for us. Rather than by God's desires and standards. 
We concern ourselves with a particular standard of living. Maybe having so much money as we enter retirement. A job title at work. While God seems to be concerned about our faith and our faithfulness. We concern ourselves more with our accomplishments. While God is more concerned about our character. We concern ourselves with our accolades and what we've received and how others have recognized us. While God is concerned about our posture towards him and our posture towards others. There's a verse in scripture that I like to think of it as God's success statement. That often when we think through the standards of how does God view and desire us to live, Micah 6, 8 for me is a great framework to think of success in the eyes of God. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Acting justly is this sense of right and wrong. It's a both proactive and reactive concern. That I see injustices that are around me and I do something to negate those, those that are hurt by it. Often the innocent or those who are in the quartet of the vulnerable, the poor, the foreigner, right? That I concern myself with those who God is concerned about. But I also love mercy. It's the word hased in Hebrew. It's this idea of loyal, loving kindness. That I extend grace, mercy, and forgiveness freely. That I offer out of compassion a desire to help meet others' needs. But all through that is the posture of walking humbly. It's this idea that I would constantly be vulnerable and recognize my need. That I wouldn't, out of pride, think of myself more highly than I ought to. The question I often think through myself, I recognize that it takes for many of us a very humbling point to come to the point of saying yes to Jesus. That there's nothing I can do ever to earn my way to God. That it's what he's done to us. But when I think of my own life, the question I have to think and wrestle with, am I growing in humility? Am I more of a humble person now than I was 10, 15 years ago? Am I allowing pride to seep in my life to where I boast of my accomplishments? Because God desires that we would walk humbly, that we would grow in humility, that we would concern ourselves with the standards that last for all eternity. I've read the story of Naaman multiple times, and for a long time I missed who I think is the most significant character in the story. It's a small, young girl who only gets two verses. This young slave girl who was captured and ripped out of her homeland, who lived as a victim in a foreign land, concerned herself enough with the plight of Naaman that she was able to look beyond her own circumstances and have compassion and pity for a man that was her enemy. 
that she didn't look at Naaman and say, you're getting exactly what you deserve, that you're going to live a life of pain and torture because how you treated me, my family, and my country. But she told Naaman's wife, there's an opportunity of hope and healing for you available in the nation of Israel. I think for us, we must live and model much like this slave girl did. And we must make it our goal to replace selfish ambition with selfless compassion. We see in Philippians chapter 2 that Paul is writing and he's saying, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united, yoked with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. Listen to this, verse three. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, nada, or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That we would replace selfish ambition with selfless compassion, with concern and interest for those around us. About eight, nine months ago, uh, I determined that my kids needed to be a little better at learning their letters and numbers. I have Maggie, who just turned seven, uh, Cooper, who's four, and Jenna, who's three. And so at bath time, I came up with this game or activity to help them uh, learn their letters. The way it would go is I would go through one of the foam letters, and I'd ask Jenna first what letter it was. If Jenna could get it correctly, she received the letter. If she didn't know it or guessed it incorrectly, Cooper would have the opportunity, and he would get it. Then it would go to Maggie. Initially, Maggie won all the time. She was feeling great about herself. She's pretty competitive, cut from the same cloth as her dad. But over the last few months, the tides begin to change, right? Occasionally now, Jenna will win, Cooper will win most of the time, and Maggie finishes dead last. It gets under her skin and irritates her, right? Her selfish ambition of looking through the lens of this game never allows her to see that this game says nothing about her worth and her value. Maggie knows every letter, every number. I think often we live our lives in such a same way that we pursue success and we put this vision idea and forget about those around us thinking that this is going to curb our desire to be defined by our self-worth, that getting this job or this opportunity or moving to this house or getting this car, I will have arrived in some manner. But can we move beyond selfish ambition to selfless compassion, to be more concerned about those around me, not my own status, but how I can use my gifts and abilities to raise with compassion those around us. It reminds me of a quote 
in Mere Christianity from the author C.S. Lewis. He says, if we were to meet a truly humble person, we would never come away from the meeting thinking they were humble. They would not always be telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. What if we were so concerned as we live our lives of not connecting or making sure that others thought highly of ourselves, but using the opportunity to be able to offer out of selfless compassion, to extend hope and grace and salvation to others. I find this interesting parallel in the story that we see all throughout Scripture. Leprosy is often used as an analogy to think about sin. In the Bible, it talks about the idea of sin that we are born into sin. That we are born separated from a perfect and holy God. And each of us, just like those who experience leprosy, are dead men walking. That there is no power in our own ability to be able to cure the one thing that we need cured. Because of God's grace and his goodness, he offers that free gift through Jesus. What if I was able to look at others more from their spiritual state than rather just what I see on the veneer. That someone who looks successful and has it all together, that if I was more concerned whether they truly had aligned their life to Jesus, that I could look beyond my selfish ambition to have selfless compassion, that I would live to make Jesus make sense to those around me, that I would be of greatest concern and desire that they would be right with God. I wish the story personally with Naaman ended there. But there's an ironic twist that takes place. One of Elijah's servants named Gehazi finds this as an opportunity for gain. Naaman is heading back to the country of Aram and Gehazi runs after him. And he stops him and says, Elijah has requested he's sent me because we have a particular need that we were unaware of and this need will cost this amount of money Naaman would you so graciously oblige to help us out it's for the ministry Naaman does he gives him twice of what he's asking for and Gehazi heads back home it says that he made sure he went and hid the silver and talents in his room He meets up with Elijah, and Elijah asks him a direct question. Gehazi, where have you been? And he lies directly about it. And he receives the consequence of leprosy that Naaman had just been healed from. This man that we want to put up and think, wow, what a terrible guy. 
faithfully served for years before for the prophet Elijah. Maybe he faced difficulty and circumstance, persecution. But in a moment of greed, finds a short-term opportunity to pursue success. Success that he didn't earn or didn't achieve. I think for you and I, we have to be awful cautious and careful and make it our goal to never take short-term shortcuts. To never be okay to sacrifice our character and morality for the achievement of success. That I am willing to never lie about my coworker hoping that that'll help get me a job promotion. That I'm willing to never lie on my taxes, hoping that I can have a little bit more money to spend in areas that I want. Right? That I would first and foremost concern myself with my character, with how I live my life in such a way. Because I know that is what permanently stands. That the seductiveness of success is never worth it. This chasing after money is fleeting at the end. Luke 12, 15, then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Greed is dangerous, it's subtle, it's sneaky. Ecclesiastes 5, 10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. It's easy to get drawn in by the seductiveness and deceit of wealth and its pursuit. Hoping around the corner we will feel more fulfilled, more content, more satisfied if we achieve or receive this certain something we're chasing for. I think the story of Naaman has truths for each of us. That no accomplishment no matter how great, will ever curb the insecurity that we often feel. That no accolades can ever earn me the approval that I desperately need. But only when I willingly humble myself. I don't have to any longer live for approval. I can live from approval. Recognizing that there is nothing I could ever do to earn and or lose God's love for me displayed in Jesus. That I can live out of response, not necessarily wanting something from people, but offering something for people. That I will cautiously protect and work hard to concern myself with my character and integrity. That I will know greed is elusive. It's sneaky. It's subtle. It can get the best of us. Gehazi served for a while, faithfully. In a moment of temptation and doubt and fear, he succumbed. That I will put my guard up to guard against greed at all cost. And in my pursuit of success, I will seek to wash away any selfish ambition knowing that I will always be willing to sacrifice my own good for those around me. That I would love those, my family, my friends, the opportunity that I would live with selfless compassion. It's not what others can offer me, but it's what I have to offer 
found in the gospel. Pursuit of success. A good goal. A bad God that never satisfies. It's only when I begin to align my life by permanent standards of success that I live for eternity rather than with a short-term temporal perspective in mind. When I recognize that living that life may gardener, I might not always have short-term success here and now, but I'm storing up for myself treasures in heaven. Knowing that my character, my desire of acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly is how I set my standards of success. Father, we ask for your help in this journey. Lord, we recognize and we thank you that you've offered your approval. Not because we're deserving or have done some great thing, but it's because of what you've done for us through Jesus on the cross. And Lord, we thank you that we can live out of the abundance of that. That our security and significance is secure. That we can live from a verdict, not for the verdict. Lord, help us see those around us in a way that as we pursue success, we would look at the opportunity we have to raise up those around us. That in humility, we would value others above ourselves. Lord, as a church family, I pray that uh, we would find encouragement and strength from journeying together. Lord, may we be a people that align our life by permanent standards of success. Lord, we love you. We need you. We thank you for the time that we've had today together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.